67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. He said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> To tell the story, we need to go back 2,000 years, as I said. Strangely enough, not to what... There, there is no 0 B.C., by the way, or A.D. There's 1 B.C. and then 1 A.D. But we can't even go there. We've got to go back to 6 to 4 B.C. Because of the change in our calendar that happened under Pope Gregory in 1582, we have a Gregorian calendar that then redated the life and the birth of Christ. And so it's around 6, 5, or 4 B.C. We're not exactly sure. So we go back to that date. The scene in Luke chapter 1 is the temple in Jerusalem. And the person that is the key figure at the beginning is Zechariah, this priest, the father of John the Baptist later. Zechariah's name, the Lord Jehovah remembers. And it has been over 400 years of silence since the Old Testament pages have closed God seems to have been silent during those times, though much has happened on planet, planet Earth. The people of Israel enjoyed a, a brief taste of freedom after the exile in Babylon. And then around 350 B.C., Alexander the Great came throughout the world, spreading the influence of Greek culture and language and bringing to, with him all the Hellenistic ways, including the worship of many idols that were forced upon the Israelites. But the straw that broke the camel's back wasn't under the Greeks. It was under the Seleucid king, the crazy and, and, and uh, dominant king Antiochus Epiphanes, who in his time killed over 40,000 Jews at one point, sent a whole bunch more into slavery, and worst of all, he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. This was terrible. And uh, at that time, of course, it wasn't Zechariah, but it was probably his grandfather that was ministering before the Lord in Jerusalem. By the time Zechariah was born, indeed, the darkness just got worse and worse. And now the ruling power on the world scene was Rome, imperial Rome. They had built roads and trade routes. The vast empire stretched all over the known world. And with the central administration that Rome had, Israel was able to, the Jews were able to enjoy a somewhat of a freedom religiously because of the different vicinities that they lived in. And yet they were still a dominated people and their religion had become crystallized into much of a legalism and cold orthodoxy. 
And the last recorded word, as I said, had come 400 and some years earlier when it said that God would raise up a prophet. A prophet would come. And in the spirit and power of Elijah, he would begin to preach in such a way that would prepare the world for the coming of the the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But as I said, priest generation after generation had come and gone in those 400 years and not seen anything of this prophet. On a national level in Israel, hope was at an all-time low. And also on a personal level, Zechariah and Elizabeth, now old in years, were also losing hope that they would see anything, not only of a national redeemer, but of a personal uh, offspring in their own family. For they were barren and they were now old. At an age when they should have been enjoying the grandchildren, bouncing them on their knee, they were still sorrowing over the infertility that they had experienced. And in that culture, that was deep disgrace, you see. And they had people probably telling them that it was because of their lack of faith, it was because of sin, it was because of this or that. What was old at that time? Well, the Talmud said that old began at the age of 60. We won't put up a show of hands this morning how many of you are old, but they were likely well beyond that, the age of 60, possibly in their early or late 70s. They had prayed, they had pleaded with God. During his whole career as a priest, he had fought that someone would follow him as a priest. Some offspring would come. Nothing. Many times they had thought about Abraham and Sarah and known the story of how God had granted Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age. Why could God not do it again? And yet, nothing. Year after year. Now, unlike Levites, priests did not have a forced age of retirement And so they would simply carry on their duties year after year uh, as long as they were able physically to carry on their duties. It's all explained in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. There were daily, weekly, and seasonal duties of rituals to perform. There were sacrifices, there were prayers, there were offerings, and so on. The law of Moses required that every adult male Jew had to go to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year for the primary festivals. And so needless to say, the temple in Jerusalem was a busy place and it was uh, required many priests that were to govern the operation there. They were divided into divisions and each division had to come, go to Jerusalem twice a year for a week at a time. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judea, a place about five miles west of Jerusalem in a town called Ain Karim. And when it came... His turn, his division was called upon. Uh, Zechariah had to leave his local priestly responsibilities in that town, travel the five miles to Jerusalem, and join with his division in performing the rituals and the sacrifices and the offerings during that full week. When they arrived, the way that they decided who would do what was by a casting of lots, like a drawing of straws. And when they arrived, they would have done that, and then some would be killing animals, some would be cleaning up, some would be offering this, and some would be doing that. And it fell upon Zechariah at this stage to actually be the one who would have the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies and before the golden altar, spreading the incense out that would rise up in a holy haze in the temple. 
In the morning sacrifice it was done, and then in the evening sacrifice it was done every day. And that incense sufficient was put on the hot coals so that it would actually rise there for 12 hours and fill the place with that smell. The law of God said that that particular recipe for that kind of incense could be used nowhere else. It was just for that kind of purpose. And so the smell that rose into the nostrils, burned the eyes of the people in the area of the temple, would know this is all about God. This is all about a time of prayer. Because the incense, you see, in the Old Testament that would rise before the golden altar between the holy place and the holy of holies represented the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. That's what the incense represented. And that's why outside of the holy place, when Zechariah or the priest was offering it, everyone outside would fall prostrate before the Lord and begin to pray. You could run ahead if you have your Bible to Revelation chapter 8. This is something that we had better get used to because the incense and the prayers of the saints are something that we will see in heaven Chapter 8 in verse 1 of Revelation, we read, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stood, who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. You see, that's what incense represents is the symbol of prayer. And so God... Uh, God would, would lead his, the, the priest into this holy place in the morning and in the evening, and it fell upon Zechariah to, to have that opportunity, to have that privilege at this time. Think about it. This is the high point of his priestly career. It said in the, in the Mishnah that, that a priest could only do this once during his entire lifetime. And so if the lot was cast upon you and you'd already done it once, you had to defer to somebody else that would do it. And now finally, in his old age, it's fallen upon Zechariah. Well, after the ceremonial washing, the putting on of the garments, Zechariah entered past the first curtain into the holy place. He had two assistants with him. One was to remove the old ashes and the other to spread the hot coals from the brazen altar upon the golden altar. And when they finished doing that, the two of them left and then all alone by himself in the holy place ahead of the golden altar stood Zechariah and began then to offer the incense. Upon, upon the signal of the presiding a priest, the signal was given, and then um, Zechariah would take the incense and spread them out over the hot coals, and this incense haze, the smoke would rise. And I wonder, it probably only would have taken a few minutes, but I wonder if he stayed and he lingered and he let the moment sink in as long as he could. He knew this was the only time that he'd be doing this. And in that lingering, maybe just those extra moments was when something extraordinary happened and heaven came down in the form of the angel Gabriel and to the right of the golden altar the angel Gabriel appeared before Zechariah. Zechariah was terrified. He was numb with the inability to even speak almost and <clears throat> the Bible says in Luke chapter 
1, that um, the angel spoke to him and said that, that God had heard Elizabeth and his prayer and that they would give birth to a son and that they were to call him John. And that's not the most amazing part. He went on to say that this John would go before the Lord, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and that he would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah and he would prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Incredible hope. Zechariah was numb, dumbfounded. And in the, in the midst of this, this fulfillment of personal dream and national hope, he responds and he says, how is this to be since I am old and my wife Elizabeth is old? And the angel responds. And uh, you can imagine how he responds. The angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And because you did not believe me, you will be unable to speak until this promise has been fulfilled. And immediately... Zechariah is unable to speak. He staggers out of the holy place. He walks down the steps of the temple. The people that are on their knees are waiting to receive the last benediction, to receive the blessing, but he's unable to speak. He can't say a word. He motions with his hands trying to describe what has happened, but he can't. His week finishes and he returns to Elizabeth five miles away in their hometown, trying to describe to her also what had happened to him. And uh, within a few months, she becomes pregnant. And the news travels like wildfire. Three months later, or, uh, she is pregnant and, and uh, the word is all around. Uh, people are talking about it. The, the whole town is abuzz. And uh, the story's not over yet. Even Elizabeth, their young cousin, is uh, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy comes to visit. It is an unexpected visit. They're not expecting Mary to come. And she comes and she enters the house and she just says the traditional greeting, Shalom. And, and immediately the baby within Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she begins to prophesy. And she prophesies over Mary. And she says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should choose to visit me? And for three months, Mary stays with Elizabeth and they visit and they talk about their pregnancies and the amazing things that God is doing. And, and Zechariah is unable to do anything but, but listen because he can't speak yet. Well, the baby bo is born, John the Baptist is born, and the whole town and all the relatives are there, and everybody has an opinion about what he should be called. And in the midst of it all, John, or Zechariah asks for a, a stone tablet to be brought to him, you know, the first century iPad. And, and he gets this thing in his hand, and he etches out, his name is to be called John. And everybody's going, why John? Nobody's called John in your family. But he says, his name is to be called John. And as soon as he has etched that in the stone, his tongue is released. He can speak. And everybody's going, amazing. How could this be? And the whole word had spread around of these things that had happened to Zechariah. And as soon as he is able to speak, the first words out of his mouth, the first words are, he picks up his new little baby son, John. And he looks him in the eye and he says, And you, my child, 
You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. What an incredible fulfillment of dreams and hopes on a personal level for Zechariah and Elizabeth and on a national level for the nation of Israel. Well, as you know, Luke chapter 2 goes right into the announcement and the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was to come, that John the Baptist went announcing. And then as, the, as it proceeds, as we turn the pages on chapter 3 of Luke, we are then confronted with a grown-up John the Baptist. Some years have escaped us now, and John, John the Baptist is a man he is living in the wilderness. The most likely scenario is that his parents, Zechariah, already old, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had died while he was still a boy. And he had been given to a community in the wilderness, the Essenes likely, the people that were responsible for the preservation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they had raised him. And so by the time that he reappears in Luke chapter 3 and comes back into the vicinity of people... He is now preaching. He's called John the Baptizer because not only is he preaching repentance, but he's also baptizing everybody. He's saying, you need to go under this baptism to get ready to meet the Lord, the one who is just a few months younger than I. And so John the Baptist comes preaching in chapter 3. And he's preaching a message of hope, a message of hope to all who would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The message of Luke 1, 2, and 3 is all about hope, friends. It's about the message that says heaven came down into our existence, into our reality, that we're not left alone, that, that He is real, He is Emmanuel, God with us. We need a message of hope, friends. When I was in seminary many years ago, I had a homiletics professor who said to me, don't preach your doubts, preach, don't preach your doubts, people have enough of their own. Preach to hopelessness. Preach to meaninglessness. I've never forgot those words. Henry David Thoreau said that most people lead lives of quiet desperation and they go to the grave with that song still in them. Most people lead lives of quiet desperation. I don't know why, but this past week I thought about that play, Les, 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 Les Miserables. <laughs> Sorry, my French is bad. <laughs> I'm better at Spanish. And um, I had to look it up, some of the songs, because I know that some of the lyrics are powerful. I think that it was uh, Susan Boyle on Britain's Got Talent that made the song I Dreamed a Dream even more popular today. And the, the first words of that song say, I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But then the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder as they tear your hope 
apart as they turn your dreams to shame. And for a little while, the, the singer, the lyrics stay down in that shame, in that pit, in that low level. And then the song ends down there with this last line. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And that's where it ends. Life has killed the dream I dreamed. Can you imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth as a young married couple? A promising future. A wonderful career as a priest. I can imagine them singing when hope was high and life was worth the living, that everything was rosy. And I can imagine them 50 years later in their old age that life had killed the dream that they dreamed. You see, Jesus is all about a message of hope. Let me read to you uh, some words this morning that I trust will resonate with your reality. It's about ordinary people. It comes from an author by the name of Lewis Smedes. We ordinary people cannot fit our lives into preformed styrofoam boxes. We cannot imagine life as well as we would like, at least not in our secret places. We cannot get all the strings tied. It won't wrap up the way we want it. For us, ordinary people, survival is often the biggest success story we dare hope for. Ordinary people often feel tired. They come to church and they listen to words about a grace that has made life all right at the core, but they are often so muzzled by self-pity, so shackled by anger, and so paralyzed by their own real hurts that they cannot find the extra reserve of power to open up their hearts to the reality of Jesus Christ and the fact of His grace. God needs to open the door. God needs to open the door, this author says. That's our hope, you see, is that the extraordinary God comes down into our ordinary or even subordinary existence and bring something extraordinary out of what we would consider as a waste of a life. God has to open the door. That's what he did for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's listen on as that same author continues. He says, Sometimes people are sure that everything is all wrong and they are so tired of trying to make it right. And then God comes quietly to tell them that he is around them and above them and under them and in them and ahead of them and that with this surrounding shield of His strong love, they are going to be all right. Sometimes people are in the grip of anger that chokes their hearts, stifles their joy, smothers every intimate relationship and then God comes to break the chain of anger and liberate an ordinary person for a new try at love. Sometimes people live in quiet terror of their own death and then God comes to them and gives them a reason for being very glad to be alive just for one more day. Sometimes people brood over depressing memory of some rotten thing that they did and cannot forget or forgive themselves for having done and then God comes in to open their hearts to receive the gifts of other ordinary people's forgiveness and so somehow to come to forgive themselves. 
Sometimes ordinary people wrap themselves up like mummies in the suffocating sackcloth of their own self-hatred. And then God comes to open their eyes to the extraordinary wonder of their great worth in His eyes. Friends, we're all ordinary people. And there will be nothing extraordinary about our lives if it is not that heaven comes down and meets with us where we live. That's the message of hope. It really is Emmanuel, God with us. There's nothing else that's extraordinary about you and I. It's only what God can do with us and in us and in spite of us through Jesus Christ. So the incense on that golden altar was a symbol. A symbol of the prayers of the saints that rise, calling out to God, saying, Oh God, come, because if you don't come, we're just ordinary people that are going to lead ordinary lives and end an ordinary existence. But God, if you come down, something extraordinary could happen. I'm going to ask that this morning, the prayers of the saints, like incense, will rise again this morning. Instead of the focus on the pulpit this morning, the focus is going to be on the pews as we conclude our service. And I'm going to call upon us to all pray. And the prayers of the saints are going to rise like a holy fragrance in the nostrils of the Lord God in heaven. And he's going to hear you cry out for the things that you're hopeless about. I bet you right now that if I asked you to, you could fill all ten fingers with people and situations in your life that you have considered beyond hope right now. You could list the people, the relatives, the friends, the co-workers, your own life. You could list situations and your fingers and toes would be filled. And it's hopeless. I'm not asking you to pray something that you can manage in your own strength. I'm asking you to ask for the impossible, the extraordinary. God loves it when we shut ourselves up so that if He doesn't show up, nothing's going to change. I read the book once uh, a while back in the 90s by David Bryant called The Hope at Hand. Just before he published this book, Pat and I were in Colorado. We'd heard him preach and speak. And he spoke about having taken a Bible, fresh new Bible that he had just bought. And he took a yellow marker and as he read through the entire Bible over a period of months, he circled or highlighted everything that had to do with hope. And he said, the concept of hope throbs throughout this book. This book is a message of hope for humanity, friends. This is a message of hope. Emmanuel, God with us, come down, ready to fill our, our, our ordinary lives with something extraordinary. He, t- he writes in that book, David Bryant writes in that book, Hope at Hand, that one day he was visiting a big city in the States. He didn't say what city. And there was a big civic center that was rented by a Christian group to hold a concert of prayer. And all the churches had coordinated to fill one auditorium with a concert of prayer. But this civic center had two huge auditoriums. And in the other auditorium was an exhibition boxing match with George Foreman. And so the civic uh, managers, civic center managers, decided that to avoid confusion, they placed at the front entrances a, a big sign with two arrows going two different directions. One said boxing, one said prayer. So that the people wouldn't get confused. And that city was being called now to either go to watch a boxing match or to go to prayer. 
And David Bryant says later on that after the event, he says he wished that he would have asked the people to have put on their boxing and wrestling. Because prayer is all about wrestling, isn't it? We see in Genesis chapter 32 when, when Jacob is wrestling in prayer with God, we see a picture of prayer. We see in Paul's letters, sometimes he refers to the, the warfare wrestling metaphor that prayer is wrestling before God and saying, Oh God, please come down because without you, nothing's going to change. And so God's people wrestle in prayer for one another to bring hope into the hopelessness of our ordinary existence. Friends, right now I'm going to ask that we turn our attention to God. Now, if you're not used to praying, you want to just be by yourself, you can do that. And you can pray by yourself. If you are uh, okay with turning to the person beside you, if you're a married couple, that'd be great. You know some situations that you can pray about. And I'm asking that over this whole room, you'd pray in an audible voice. I'm going to ask someone to come and play piano, Diane. And we're going to have uh, a prayer incense go up to the throne of God. And it's going to be a sweet fragrance to Him. And you're going to lift up to the Lord some of the things that you think are hopeless today. And you're going to take turns praying, and then I'll come up and close in prayer in five minutes or so. So would you turn in? You're not required to. You want to pray by yourself, that's fine. But if you know someone around you want to pray with them, turn in now and pray that God would bring hope to the hopeless situations that you know and have come to your mind. Let's pray.